the San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 20, Episode 18. Everyday War. Talking with author Greta Euling. What goes through the minds of non-combatant civilians in the midst of a war? Modern technology brought warfare into the daily lives of civilians, and that continues today in the Ukraine. The images of bombed-out apartment buildings and factories in Ukrainian cities appear on our TV screens every night. But by the same token, we also see heroic acts of civilian non-combatants helping Ukrainian soldiers in so many different ways. Our guest today is Greta Euling, who teaches at the University of Michigan's Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies. She joins us from her office in Ann Arbor. Hi, Greta, and welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. Greta, tell us about how you came to write Everyday War. Thanks. You know, I worked in policy analysis for the UN Refugee Agency in Geneva, Switzerland, and then I worked for nonprofit organizations in Washington, D.C. that helped children that had been smuggled or trafficked into the United States. And these were really wonderful career experiences, but I truly love the doing original research and the creativity and freedom that comes with that. And so in 2013, I wrote a proposal to the Fulbright Foundation to continue research on Crimea that I had done back in the late 90s. And as I was waiting for an answer about that funding, the Crimean Peninsula was occupied by Russian-backed forces. Mm -hmm. And I almost gave up on the prospect of doing the research when they contacted me and suggested that I do the research anyways on a somewhat modified topic. Um, And so that's what took me to Ukraine for three summers of research in 2015, 2016, and 2017. I did over 150 interviews with people who had been affected by the war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And the analysis of those materials, as well as my own experiences in the country, led me to write Everyday War. Now, you speak Russian, right? Correct. And some Ukrainian. And some Ukrainian also. And the the two languages are, are fairly closely related, are they not? If you ask a linguist, the answer will be no. Mm -hmm. But in practice, the two languages have been spoken alongside quite fluidly for a long time. And so it's, you know, when I was in Ukraine, it was not uncommon to have one person speak in Russian and be perfectly understood, but the answer would come in Ukrainian Mm -hmm. and vice versa. Uh-huh. So they're mutually intelligible, and people tend to understand both languages. Oh, that's that's very interesting. I, I had a similar experience between Spanish and Portuguese when I lived in Latin America. Well, tell me, what is the premise of your book, Everyday War? Everyday War is really an intervention into how we think about war. It intervenes by trying to look at 
what a war is like from the inside out rather than the outside in. Mm-hmm. And when we take that perspective, what we see is the side of war that is not chaos, but planned and willed destruction. And we see that human relationships and civilians actually play a very significant role in outcomes. So the concept of everyday war refers to the conscious and creative ways that non-combatants responded to and actually participated in the war. It's a very pragmatic and self-defensive stance that's intended to maintain a livable world in places where international humanitarian law is being violated. And if that sounds abstract, you know, I can give you the example of Alexandra, who fled her city with her family, found safety, but her father went back Mm -hmm. to be part of a volunteer battalion. And yet he lacked equipment. And so she provisioned him with things like night vision goggles, Mm. being fully conscious that the people he would be shooting at were former neighbors and former friends. Mm. So that's the concept of of everyday war. And the premise of everyday war is that it's, it's not war itself. It's distinguished by its objective because the people engaged in this everyday kind of war were not interested in killing per se as much as preserving selected human connections and contributing to national defense. It's a concept that I worked out in relation to an idea in critical international relations theory about everyday peace, which really doesn't apply in Ukraine today, but it seeks to take the actions of non-elite actors into account more seriously by, you know, considering what's going on at multiple layers of society simultaneously. Now, before we launch into the book, could you take a few minutes and tell us about the Donbass region the Crimean annexation, because that Donbass region, the ongoing war that began there in 2013, 2014, was really a prelude to what is going on in Ukraine today. And many of the issues in Donbass have become sort of the foundation or the the rationale, if you will, for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Could you tell us a little bit about the Donbass region, how it interfaces with Russia, how it interfaces with Ukraine. And that will, I think that'll be a great prelude to talking about the book so that our our listeners will understand what the Russian interests are in Donbass and what the Ukrainian issues are in Donbass, and in part, why these two countries are at war today. Yes. So the Donbass refers to two republics, Donetsk and Luhansk, two provinces that are stacked on top of each other in the easternmost part of Ukraine. And they have long been characterized by a strong regional identity based in part on their history, as well as being a strong industrial core that was intricately tied to Russia in terms of trade. Um, So mining, metallurgy Mm. were very large industries in that region. And it was also a predominantly Russian-speaking region. In 2013 and 2014, there was a revolution in Ukraine that was 
centered on this idea of the direction the country should be taking. Should it maintain its close ties with Russia or should it seek greater integration with the European Union? Mm-hmm. And in the beginning like of that revolution, people were very divided about the optimal course for Ukraine mm-hmm. with people in Donbass feeling like they wanted the money made in Donbass to stay in Donbass. They mm-hmm. wanted their autonomy. They wanted their language. There were you know, motions in Kiev to change the official language, and that didn't go over well in Donbass. Mm-hmm. It n- never happened, but it did inflame certain sentiments. And gradually in Donetsk and Luhansk, the people that were in favor of maintaining those close ties to Russia gained the upper hand. Mm-hmm. But we should stay, say here that that was with the initially covert and eventually overt intervention by Russia. Mm-hmm. They infiltrated local governance with their own cadres, sent mercenaries, fueled in funds for demonstrations, and that fomented what broke out into a military conflict in 2014. The occupation of Crimea, by contrast, which happened first, was bloodless, relatively seamless, Mm -hmm. and although it was widely criticized by both the Ukrainian government and the international community, there was never really any motions towards taking it back from Russia by force, right? We implemented some sanctions, but that was the extent of the repercussions for that occupation. And so I like to think about the war that's happening right now as really a continuation. It began in 2014 with Mm -hmm. the occupation of Crimea. When that went off without a hitch, efforts were expanded to also take control of the eastern provinces And although that led to a military conflict, that military conflict was confined to the eastern part of the country. Mm -hmm. And then in 2020, we have the full-scale invasion that engulfs all of Ukraine in this existential battle for survival, which has somewhat paradoxically led Ukrainians to become more unified Mm -hmm. around their national idea, their national identity, and the importance of their territorial integrity as including both Donetsk, Luhansk, and Crimea. And so that is what they're fighting for today is the return of territories that were lost beginning Mm -hmm. in 2014. Let's come back to your book. In chapter two, you introduce us to Cafe Patriot. And tell us about Cafe Patriot. It's a military-themed cafe. It heightens conscious awareness of the military conflict. It brings both soldiers and veterans, non-combatants together. Tell us about Cafe Patriot as kind of a lead into the rest of your book. So Cafe Patriot was opened in the western part of the country by a few veterans of the fighting that had demobilized and sought to reintegrate themselves into civilian life. Mm -hmm. 
they opened that ca- the cafe when after they had applied for various jobs and been rejected in spite of their qualifications and found that they were greeted with a very negative sentiment, not unlike the sentiment that Vietnam War veterans mm-hmm. encountered when they returned from the United States. Mm-hmm. And so they opened this cafe with the twin purpose of providing other demobilized soldiers with a pathway to civilian life, Mm -hmm. relief from depression for those soldiers who might have been struggling emotionally to transition from military to civilian. But then the other objective is also interesting because they wanted to seek, they wanted to raise awareness Mm -hmm. among the Ukrainians who at that time wanted to go on with their lives and ignore the threat posed by Russia Mm -hmm. against their country. And so one of the things that's significant about this cafe is that, you know, in the past, most of the literature on societal militarization has thought about it as something that's pretty insidious, pretty just sort of creeps through a society gradually. And the cafe shows how these civilians acted quite consciously and quite creatively. Was The decor of the c- cafe was quite striking because they used the paraphernalia they brought back from the front to decorate. Mm-hmm. So in other words, I had to pick up a deactivated landmine to get to a <laughs> napkin. There were bazookas hanging overhead. Uh-huh. There were cases of bullet casings you could pocket as a souvenir. There was a real Kalashnikov you could pick up and get some instruction in and in a, the actual bulletproof vests that the, the demobilized fold, uh, soldiers had worn for you to try on and just, you know, feel the weight of it as a way of understanding from a first person perspective, mm-hmm. what war, a little bit more about what war is like. Mm-hmm. And of course it was also, again, it was an opportunity for the civilian non-combatants to interface with these veterans who wanted to reintegrate into society. Tell us about, you know, some of the civilian interfaces that take place there at Cafe Patriot and how the, and follow some of the Cafe patrons who, who try to understand what's going on at home. Give us a sense of how civilians interfaced with Cafe Patriot. The civilians who visited Cafe Patriot often wanted a place where they could relax with their family or their children. And so they were often a little bit disturbed by the military decor, which they found made them somewhat uncomfortable. But the veterans saw ways to promote a dialogue between themselves and the patrons in a way that could really spark more critical thinking about the war and more direct engagement, right? Rather than just going on with your daily life, stopping to think about what was really happening in the eastern parts of the country. And that was a productive move on their part. And I should add also that the employed veterans at the cafes, cooks and waiters and 
So in addition to providing a space where veterans could feel understood, they were also providing jobs. Tell us about the catastrophic effects of war on relationships, uh, specifically between uh, husband and wife, um, mother and son, father and daughter. Give us a sense of the, of course, that's not unique to Ukraine. It's not unique to the Donbass conflict. It's something which is uh, which is typical of war. But give us a flavor of how the Ukrainians have personal relationships have been impacted by this war. Of course. So I already mentioned Alexandra, and she exemplifies the first dimension of everyday war, which is this, you know, this active, purposeful engagement in the war going on around the country. A second dimension of everyday war that's less obvious is, as you mentioned, relationships. Mm -hmm. The majority of people I interviewed who had been displaced from Donbass about 67% of them lamented the loss of friendships and new tensions within family relationships Mm -hmm. due to the war. As one woman put it, people became like bombs because a single word could make someone, metaphorically at least, explode. In her experience, decades-long friendships unraveled quickly when people had opposing political views. And so the Russian invasion of Ukraine, obviously a military, humanitarian, and geopolitical crisis, has been accompanied by a relational crisis in which families and and friendships have acquired their own fault lines. Relationships become microcosms of war, and this is significant for the foreseeable future because, of course, many Ukrainians have friends and family in Russia— and many Russians have friends and family in Ukraine. And in many cases, these, these relationships are either have either broken down or are experiencing a hiatus. When the war first broke out last year, we're moving on a little bit from uh, Donbass, but when the, uh, the Russian invasion started in February of 2022, we saw tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of women and children, Ukrainian women and children, uh, being put on trains and driving to the border with Poland and seeking refuge in Western Europe, uh, leaving their husbands or sons or fathers in the Ukraine to fight against the Russians. Give us a sense of those kind of stresses on non-combatants who, while they may be securely tucked away in the western part of Ukraine, away from Russian missiles, etc., or even in Europe. But some of the stresses that those non-combatants feel because of the separation from their fathers, sons, husbands, brothers, give us a sense of, uh, of that stress and how people, do, how people are dealing with that. You know, this is a result of the policy decision on the part of the Zelensky administration to require all of the males between ages 18 and 60 to remain in the country to defend it. Mm-hmm. And that means that the population of refugees is skewed strongly in favor of the women and the children. And one of the big questions is, 
will the men, you know, when the war is over, will the men leave Ukraine to join their partners and their children in different parts of Europe or the United States uh, or Australia, or will the women go back? And right now the evidence suggests that the majority of Ukrainians who have been displaced from Ukraine, which at its peak was somewhere between seven and eight million people, the majority of those seven to eight million people um, either already have or plan to go back. Mm. But there's a complicating factor in all of this because, of course, it's very stressful for a family to Mm be separated in that way, especially during a war. And so there's a lot of uh, adjustments being made to that. And I think that it's it, it'll be difficult for those families, especially when they know that their loved ones are, you know, in the line of fire and, and could could perish. In the latter part of your book, you talk about how Ukrainians feel that their lives have become something akin to living in a science fiction drama. Give us a sense of that phenomenon where whether you're a combatant or a non-combatant, you feel that you're living in a science fiction drama. Thanks for asking about that. I wrote about, you know, I wrote that chapter to capture the subjective experience of military violence in a way that encapsulated what people had to said to me that was not really a story, right? They told Mm -hmm. me about their experiences of trauma and Mm -hmm. loss, not as linear stories with a beginning, a middle, and an end, but in terms of feelings, sensations, oftentimes their physical experience. And so um, what everyday sci-fi refers to is the sense that the landscape and the world had been so radically altered Mm -hmm. by the military aggression that it was almost like living in a science fiction drama, peopled by zombies and monsters and mutants. And they referred to a period when, you know, to sort of index this science fiction reality for me, they told me that there was a period of an entire month when the dogs were so shocked that they didn't bark Hmm. for weeks. And then there was a period when all they could do was bark. And my interviewees speculated, well, maybe there's some sort of a technology that's being used to create this. But I think the main point is that it's very difficult to adequately convey the experience of military aggression in a way that truly communicates what it feels like from the inside out. And this expression about sci-fi encapsulates that sense that the world itself had changed and they had to even find a whole new vocabulary to talk about it. They couldn't use the usual terms even Mm -hmm. to talk about it. So that was the sci-fi reality. And of course, what goes with it is with this trauma is a very practical form of Orientalism. If Orientalism is the construction of mythologies and stereotypes about other people that at least describes them as as lesser humans, 
practical Orientalism is the way that that manifests in social life and how it eventually becomes part of your daily life and your interactions with other people. In your book, you talk about, particularly in the Donbass, in the case of the Donbass confrontation and war, you talk about the fact that the Ukrainian military was not was not capable of retrieving many of the of their dead comrades, and that as a result, individual non-combatants would volunteer to become body collectors. And again, to the to your point about science fiction and a dystopian landscape, nothing could be more dystopian and science fiction and zombie-like than volunteers going out to collect bodies of, of dead soldiers. In your book, you entitle it Black Tulips. Could you tell us about that experience? I'm really glad that you asked about the Black Tulips because one of the things that everyday war produces is these ethics of care. And in in listening to stories of the war, I found a pattern in which a lot of decisions were based on safeguarding others Mm -hmm. or tending to their emotional well-being. And this is a perfect example of, can be found in the Black Tulips. Mm -hmm. The Black Tulips were a group of volunteer body collectors, as you mentioned, and I came to know one quite well. His name, his pseudonym in the book is Taurus. He came out of retirement to lead small groups of men along mine roads, using tools they brought from home to excavate these shallow graves. And I wanted to know why. And what he told me was that he wanted to offer the bereaved peace of mind if he couldn't offer peace itself. Mm -hmm. So he was very concerned about the emotional well-being of the bereaved and sought to do what he could to give them some sense of closure. And also, of course, the dignity of the dead, because Mm -hmm. what we're talking about is people who have given their lives Mm -hmm. for their country. And, you know, since time immemorial, it's practically a sacred task to respect those remains mm-hmm. and provide them with a dignified burial. So in the beginning, they did this task because the Ukrainian military was not yet ready mm-hmm. or strong enough to do it itself and had to make very pragmatic decisions between providing helmets for the living or body bags for the dead. Mm. Today, this practice continues. And I was speaking one, with one of the Black Tulips over WhatsApp this morning. Their work continues today because of the, the sheer extent of the carnage, because of the sheer extent of the carnage mm-hmm. um, and the war crimes that are going on that require excavation for the purpose of documentation and the ICC proceedings eventually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you talk about the ethics of care, particularly in a, in a wartime situation, of course, this is a wonderful example, the, the volunteer body collectors. Greta, do you have any other examples of non-combatants going above and beyond what they would have normally done in their day-to-day mundane lives to rising to a level 
and driven by this uh, this concept of ethics of care. I can imagine, for instance, here in the United States, from time to time when we have a, a dreadful natural disaster, uh, we see individual citizens rising to heights of bravery and uh, wanting to care for uh, some individuals. Are there, again, it's probably, uh, it's probably a, a human condition to do that. Any other examples of this ethics of care that you've seen since you've, you're so intimately involved with the, the Ukraine, with Donbass, and, and of course now the, the, the war? Oh, that's such a good question because there's so many examples. Mm-hmm. A lot of people requalified or redesigned their work lives around the war. And I think, you know, a good example of that would be a woman who said, you know, I wondered, I asked myself, should I cook for the internally displaced people in the shelter or my family at home? Mm -hmm. And in Ukraine, people made really consequential choices and have been mobilizing levels of care that they say is unprecedented for them. Mm. Another example would be a school teacher who became a humanitarian, a stay-at-home mother who starts running food supplies to the front. Gosh, there's so many examples. And I think in recent news coverage, your listeners may have heard about the weaving of camouflage nets at the public library in Lviv, Ukraine, where, you know, on your way home from work, you don't have to go straight home from work or school. Mm -hmm. You can put in some hours weaving camouflage nets Mm -hmm. that are tremendously helpful to the people who are fighting at the front. So impressive how the Ukrainians are rising to the occasion, driven by this ethics, this concept of ethics of care, which we see this in our own country when when we're faced with crisis. Well, Greta, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts about your book, Everyday War? You know, since the book's publication in February 2023, I've been speaking to people pretty much all over the world who found some resonance Mm -hmm. with the book from Mozambique to New Zealand Mm -hmm. and the former former Yugoslavia, people who lived through the siege of Sarajevo. And so I've really come to the conclusion that the violations of humanitarian law that go on, not just in Ukraine, but other countries as well, suggest that everyday war is not limited Mm -hmm. to Ukraine. Anytime a residential area becomes the target of military aggression, um, as you mentioned, yes, civilians will be integral to the response to that, and they will respond in in very conscious and creative ways to protect both themselves and one another. Greta, where can our listeners buy a copy of Everyday War? They can find a copy of Everyday War directly at the Cornell University Press website, simply by typing in my last name, They can also order it on Amazon.com or find it anywhere else books are sold. And the correct spelling of your last name is? U-E-H-L-I-N-G. 
Thank you. With a name like Herlihy, I'm always very careful to make sure that <laughs> <laughs> to make sure that that spelling uh, spelling has been a very important part of my life when it comes to pronouncing my last name. I'm sure for you also. <laughs> yes, and I I developed a fun way for you know when I'm on the phone. Uh-huh. U is for unicorn. E is for elephant. Uh-huh. H is for horse. L is for lion. And once I've named off those animals, they get it. I'm in a good mood, and the person I'm speaking to has lots of imagery, and they're in a good mood too. Hey, Greta, how can our listeners follow you? So I have a website, GretaEuling.com. I'm on Twitter at EulingUmishED1, and I'm on Instagram at Greta.Euling. Give us your Twitter handle again, please. So it's at you. At Euling, U-M-I-C-H-E-D-1. Ah, I see. Okay. Yeah. So it so it's my last name. Yes. And then UMich for University of Michigan. Yes. And then and e- then the letters E D for education, but there's no U before the one. Ah, okay. E D one. Very good. Well, Greta, once again, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your book, Everyday War. And is there a sequel in the offing? Yes, there is. And it let's see, seven out of eight chapters completed. Hopefully that last chapter will be completed this summer. Mm-hmm. Well, well, thanks for asking. We'll look forward to having you back when when that new book, the sequel, is published, and to continue this conversation about the the effects of war on non-combatants, particularly in the case of Ukraine and Eastern Ukraine, the Donbass. Again, we appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 403, as the San Francisco Experience podcast continues to mark our third anniversary. You can hear the podcast on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Amazon Music, 19 platforms in total. And make sure to subscribe and join our audience spanning 65 countries. This has been the San Francisco Experience podcast with Jim Hurley coming to you from San Francisco. Thank you.